A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I, I think we're going to have a really fun show for you for you today. We've got we've got somebody with us who is, um, you know, as, as I've been talking, getting to know her. She's just um, got a great story, just fun to talk to. Should be a great show. Um, I've got with me uh, Leticia Baca. We're going to call her Letty. Letty's uh, nickname to friends. I found out, so I fall in that friends group. So that's great. Uh, she is an expert in food and beverage. Uh, in the food and beverage industry, and she is the president of um, Lakewood Organic Juices, a brand that many of you may be familiar with. And a uh, great company, great product, great culture. She's a culture person, which is which makes her a great fit for our show. Good morning, Letty. How are you? Good morning. Thank you again for having me today. I'm quite excited about spending the morning here with you. Oh, I'm so glad to have you with us. So, um, so. Like all of our guests, Letty has a great story. You know, we, we don't we don't just fall into the position of being a present. We don't fall into a position of, of having the respect that's carried. And, and you know, there, there's always a life story that's behind it. And, and, and Letty, you know, our, your story is, is particularly interesting. Uh, would you please share it with our listeners? Yes, um, I'm Leticia Baca. And as, um, as mentioned, I'm the president of Liquid Organic Juices. A little bit of my background is that I'm originally from Yonkers in New York. Uh, both of my parents are immigrants. My father came from Argentina and my mother came from Dominican Republic. Growing up with my sister, uh, the household was tense uh, between financial struggles, arguments, and you know, witnessing physical abuse between my parents. It was clear from a young age that uh, my parents had high expectations of us. Um, especially when it came to our education, as they sacrificed everything that they had to come here for the betterment of their children and, and their own future. And they saw education as the key to success and independence. From my mother's perspective, the financial independence uh, was from potentially a future spouse, uh, not having to depend on somebody else. And from my dad's perspective, uh, the, the freedom of, uh, of, of choosing where to work to avoid exploitative employers, uh, that he was very key on that. Uh, we moved to Punta Cana in Dominican Republic in the early 90s in a resort uh, where both of my parents worked full time. And while they were working, we were homeschooled and there were no other children, you know, to socialize with. Uh, so my parents eventually divorced for all the best reasons uh, when I was eight years old. And from that moment on, it felt like my life changed forever. Uh, it was just never the same. Were you already in Queens uh, when, when that divorce happened? Or did that happen while you were still down in the Dominican Republic? We were in Dominican Republic at the time. Got it. Okay. Um, it was a day that I'll never forget. Uh, we were doing a fun photo shoot for the boutique that was in the lobby of the resort. Uh, back then, the resort was very, very tiny village. Um, and they wanted to bring some exposure. And we were the only kids around to model their kids' clothing. So we were out in the beach. And then suddenly and very abruptly, one of my father's colleagues comes and get us. We were in bathing suits. Uh, we hadn't even changed yet. We didn't have any time. We were rushed into the car. And by the time we got to our little villa, 
Um, it was very clear. My parents had gotten into a very big argument. All of our clothes was in the bed of another truck. Um, we weren't even given time to put some clothes on. Baby suits and all. We were put in a car. My mom, you know, got in the car with us. And we drove off to uh, the Capitol, which was about six hours away. And not a word was said in that car ride. Um, Fast forward a little bit, um, after a few months, uh, my mother finally decides that it would be best to move to Puerto Rico, which was the island next to Dominican Republic. She had friends, she had some leads for jobs, and she was starting to figure out how to rebuild her life. So she felt it was the best option for us, for herself, and for the family. As it was very clear my dad was not going to be involved in our lives financially or physically or emotionally. He had checked out. Um, while we were very appreciative of a better uh, emotional stability in the house, you know, having removed my dad from, from the situation, um, I will say that we did struggle financially for, for, for a number of years. Um, we, would, uh, we lived in Section 8 uh, for a couple of years. We were in a cockroach-infested 400-foot apartment for several years, uh, which is not great, especially as we hit our teenage years. That was uh, kind of a recipe for, for disaster. Um, I was also bullied for most of my middle school. I was a late bloomer. Um, so having people focus on what I had not developed or developed gave me a lot of body issues. Um, so, and I'm, I'm sure that from their perspective, I came off as a little odd with these fantastical stories about living in New York and destination resorts. And here I am speaking these stories from a Section 8 apartment. It, it must have looked distorted to them. So I'm sure I was an odd, you know, student and, and I didn't quite know how to fit in. Um, we also had a lot of secrets at home, you know, from the physical abuse to, you know, the things that we were witnessing at home. So we never felt in a position where we could speak about what was happening in the home. So whenever we would get questions about when are you celebrating your birthday or, or things like that, that were more in a personal, like you're now you're trying to come over, we would panic. Like we would panic. We did not allow any of our friends, the little ones, the, the little friends that we had made to come home because we didn't want anybody to sort of unveil who, who we really were and what was happening at home. There was that shame and also that responsibility that you don't want the honor of your family to be tainted. Um, and it also felt like a betrayal to my mother who was trying to already her very best to move on with her life, to bring someone home that might, that might judge us. Um, eventually, um, it, it, it became very apparent to my mother that she wasn't going to uh, strive or reach the career goals that she had set for herself in Puerto Rico. The opportunities just weren't there and they weren't opening up. And so on another leap of faith, we got on a plane, uh, December 1998, and we moved to Miami with, we sold everything that we had and the little bit that we could, you know, transfer over to Miami, which took about two months to arrive. Um, you know, we took it over with us, uh, for those two months, we slept on the floor, uh, nothing more than just, you know, blankets and sheets, uh, you know, until our furniture arrived. Um, eventually, um, as, as we are more acquainted with the city, um, and we start expanding, riding the bus to get to see Miami beach and other areas, it really felt like an expansion of possibilities, you know, where, you know, the opportunities no longer seem 
so limited. It, you know, it just the potential in such a big city to become anything that you want to was very prevalent. And I remember my mother telling us there was a song that she would sing us all the time. It was uh, it's originally in Spanish, but in English it translates to if I can break any wall. Eventually, there's no limitation. And she would sing that to us. Oh, I might cry <laughs> over and over again. And it felt in that moment, like such a small moment, but looking back at it in hindsight, it, it was such um, an inspiration to, to us that our circumstances were temporary and that it was, we had the power to remove any barrier that could, you know, limit our potential. And that was, it was um, very touching as an adult now to remember back on, on those times. Um, by the time I'm 16 years old and I become aware that I can work and it's apparent that my, another income is needed in the house, I start skipping school to start working at a local pizzeria. You know, any shifts that I could pick up day, night, weekend, I was just always available. I, I always wanted to contribute. Eventually my mother, uh, at the age of 17, she just gave me the house budget to manage. Like I can't manage the little money that we have. I, you know, the power was getting cut off. We didn't have enough money for groceries and she just could not bear with it all. And she shifted that responsibility. And I was eager to, to accept it. I was eager to jump into that role and combine both of our incomes and see you know, what we can do. And obviously she had a hard time. Uh, she had a, a hard time balancing the budget because there was a lot of money, a lot of money missing. Uh, our rent was $350 a month and we were behind almost every month. It was very difficult for someone who was earning at the time $11,000 per year, you know, to sustain gross income to sustain a household you know, with two growing children that wanted to be in sports and were looking towards at some point, you know, going to college because there was no option. Like that was not a choice. We needed, we knew we needed to go to, to college. I think that we started college to please my mother. I, I don't think necessarily we were neither my sister or, or, or myself, we were ready to join college, but it felt like a duty that we needed to fulfill. So I, at 5.30 in the morning, I would jump in the bus. I, my driver for the route, for the school, for the route, for the bus route to go to college, um, he kind of became like my school bus guy, my school bus driver, because my house was just before the bus stop. So he would hunk on the, on the horn if he saw the bus stop empty, because I would never miss school. So anytime he thought, you know, he knew I was late and he would wait for me and he, you know, we, he became such a, my, my morning talk, you know, and, and he also would give me like a lot of pep talks, uh, giving, encouraging me to continue going to school. And he was just such an inspiration for me too. Um, he was actually a doctor in Jamaica and he was working as a, as a bus driver um, to make ends meet. And it was so refreshing to speak with someone who well-spoken, well-mannered, you know, so well-educated, gave me insight anytime or advice anytime he could. 
I think that he grew so fond of me that he would even be protective of, of like strangers sitting by me and talking to me. Like he would call them out before I even had a chance to. I mean, I'm young, I'm shy. I don't know how to turn down maybe some affections. And so he kind of, you know, he would step in and protect me. And I'm so grateful to him that there were some areas where we heard gunshots in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there were a couple of strip clubs on the way to school and the girls would finish their, their shifts around the time I was in the bus, you know? Um, so it was just a melting pot of experiences, you know, going to college, uh, but really lost in what I really wanted to do. I, I, I connected and that I needed financial means to level up in my life but I wasn't connecting in terms of passion and it just kept driving a very empty feeling. And I was job hopping a lot, mainly because I just wasn't connecting with the people around me or the work that I was doing. Um, eventually I uh, find myself um, uh, landing a job at a bank. And that was another moment where I felt expanded, where now I am dealing with, not only people in the community that are like me, but people with much more means. Um, and I think that's my first time where I as an adult where I have direct contact with people who are wealthy, who are, you know, just such a different lifestyle. And again, it was just an expansion for me of what can be. Um, and I became very driven. Uh, I'm a workaholic. I, you know, I'm putting more hours than ever. I wanted to learn every aspect of the business. I put in eight years into the industry. And there was one good day where I'm, I'm called into an office. I already know what the conversation is about. But I'm, I'm starting to feel almost sick to my stomach. Uh, I know it's a promotion. I am now dealing with, you know, high level executives in the, in the, in the, in the field. And they're also excited to present this, this offer to me and where I would become, you know, a manager of a, a, a pretty large department. And they just feel so excited to, to bring this opportunity to me. And I actually had to excuse myself to go to the bathroom. And eventually I just made it all the way to my car. And I thought I was sick to my stomach. And instead what came over me was this rush of sadness and I had to cry. I had to ugly cry and I couldn't do it in the bathroom where people were coming in and out. So I grabbed my keys to the car. I mean, these people are still waiting for me in the, in the meeting room. Yeah. And I just run to my car, which thankfully I had with me that day because at the time my, my then boyfriend, now my husband, we shared the one car. So I didn't always have a car with me in the parking lot. So I was very lucky that that day I did have it. And I just, I just let it out. I, I, it was uncontrollable. I, I, I couldn't stop it. And I, I couldn't identify, couldn't pinpoint exactly what was happening. I should be happy. This is exactly the definition of success, the job title, the salary. How could I not be happy? And it's just, I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. It was monotonous. It was, I don't want to, I don't want to demean the job, but it didn't require a lot of critical thinking. And it, it felt like I had so much more to give and I could, I realized that I needed more experience, yeah. uh, but I definitely wasn't happy where I was. I go home. I tell my husband about what happened. He is a little horrified to hear this because he had just been let go from a temp job. He, he lost. And he's like, you're the only stable income we have at the house and they're promoting you. 
he was dying to be in my shoes and I couldn't explain to him with any kind of certainty what was happening with me. Like what was going on with my brain that I just had this rejection. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a, Great story. There's more to come. Uh, you know, so folks, we're, we're at the end of our, our first segment. It goes by quickly when there's a great story and stories are what we love here. So Letty, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and let's pick that story up where we left off because it just keeps getting better and better. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's a great example of, well, one, um, a parent that really instilled some, some, some great um, uh, some great philosophy into you, some great thinking. And I, I, I want to explore that a little bit more too, because many, many of our listeners are parents or maybe parents one day, and we have a responsibility there too. But, um, but let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just one minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Okay, and we're back with uh, with Letty. Letty, uh, over the break, we were talking about kind of what happened next. My question was, so so did you know you went back to your boyfriend, but did you ever go back in the room? I did, I did. I had to. I mean, I was embarrassed that they had. I had kept them waiting. Um, I also didn't know what to do about my my physical appearance. I mean, I had mascara that had been clearly smeared, and I was trying desperately to look put together, but it was very clear when I saw their faces as I walked back into the room that they can see that there's been a change and they can see that I've been crying. Um, so one of, uh, of the ladies, um, she asked me if maybe I wanted to resume uh, at, a, at a later time, if I needed to, if everything was okay, and if I needed to resume at a later time, that that was okay. And I took her word for it. I asked her if I can, you know, I was very honored and I I was privileged to receive uh, the kind of promotion that they were offering, uh, but that um, I needed at least a a day to, to think about it before I can, I can, I could accept. And really what I was doing was buying myself time. I think in, 
instinctively, I knew exactly what I needed to do. Uh, but because at that point, I was already aware of my husband's or my then boyfriend uh, temporary job was coming to an end. Yeah. I knew that this was going to be a financial burden for, for us to figure out. Well, and it's, and it's funny because as you described this, I put myself in this, the seat of the people trying to give you the promotion. You know, I've, I've given out a lot of promotions in my career, and I don't know that I've had anybody ever walk out and come back after having cried about it. And, I, you know, it's it, it just, you know, you, you, you do is when you're giving a promotion, you get excited about doing that for somebody. And um, and it's it, it, that would be that would be strange. And, and uh, but I applaud you. Because so many people will jump at it and go through life. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of people who have attained um, really big uh, roles in organizations and don't like what they do. And it's because they keep accepting that next promotion. They're really good at what they're doing, but they don't get any energy from it. So anyway, so you, so you go back and you, you, you dive back in. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. In that moment, I was scared, though. I did not feel brave. I did not feel confident. I felt out of my mind. Um, how could I turn this down? And you're right. There is that disappointment that you see in their faces like, oh, no, what happened? You know, and so I go back home that day and my husband, my then boyfriend um, is surprised. But incredibly, he comes from such a place of empathy that he's like, I don't know exactly what's going on. This is clearly not a good idea. But if you feel so strongly about it, I am, he was more focused about my happiness than he was about the potential financial struggles. He has been always so positive and hopeful about the future. He knew that we were going to figure it out. Even if we didn't have the answers that night, that we were going to figure it out. You're good at what you do. You're clearly smart. So am I. We're, we're going we're gonna make it in life one way or another. We don't have to figure this out tonight. And if what you're telling me is that you're not happy with this job, then let's make a change. So I go the next day and I turn down the position. But not only do I turn down the promotion, I actually quit. I, I walk away altogether from the industry. That just had to be such a shocker for them. My direct supervisor didn't even look at me when I said goodbye to him. He was so disappointed. He just thought I had made the biggest mistake in my, of my life to have walked away from the promotion he was giving me and the trajectory that in his mind he had already designed for me and for himself. Um, so he was very disappointed. And I was, you know, I was sad that we didn't have that last moment to, to have a conversation and I'm hoping at some point in my career that we actually do reconnect. Um, I wish him all the best. Uh, the rest of the team, I think understood. Um, they understood right away that I, my ideas, my, my, my creativity was not going to flourish in, in that environment uh, where it's highly structured. And so I answer a Craigslist ad back when Craigslist was legitimate and um, it was for uh, an internship at a family owned company that produced organic juices. I had no idea about juices. I didn't even know what an intern would do after spending eight years moving on up. I honestly did not even know what an intern would, would do, but I said, you know, this is a great placeholder so I can apply to vet school because I knew I wanted to do something that cared for others. I just couldn't quite place how to translate that into a career. 
you know, so you kind of go to the, the, the standard go-tos, uh, a lawyer, a doctor, you know, a nurse, uh, you know, a paramedic, a firefighter. I, I knew I wanted to do something that gave back to the people. I just didn't know how to translate that. And so I thought, well, I like animals. I love animals. I'm obsessed with them. Um, let me try vet school. Yeah. And I used this job as my internship job as a way of applying for school, finishing the requirements that I needed. And I, despite my earnest efforts, got rejected from every school I applied to. Every school turned me down. And so at that point, I start panicking. At that point, I'm like, okay, I'm in trouble now. I am really in trouble here. I don't know what to do with my life. I have no direction. I don't have any plans. And for the first time, I felt like nothing was really concrete. Um, and I don't even know when, what, what was the moment exactly. But I take a moment to look around me. I'm in this family-owned business who is consistently growing double digits every year. They have been either promoting me or giving me raises from the moment I walked in. And I start realizing there might be an opportunity to grow right here where I am. So I start poking around. I start looking at the different departments and I noticed that every department is kind of functioning very independently, but there isn't anybody jiving and synchronizing all of the activities, you know, to have, to have a harmonious workflow. Yeah, that, that can happen with family businesses, especially early on, is that, you know, they, they, they operate from an area of passion, from an area of great product, but they don't necessarily have the business systems. You're absolutely, absolutely correct. It's almost like you were there with me. <laughs> That's absolutely what was happening. They were creative, like they were geniuses creating products and, you know, they were very good at the, what they were doing, but clearly the industry was evolving into a very sophisticated, you know, operations and we weren't quite catching up and it was hard we had growing pains the company had grown from 20 million to 30 million you know in a very short period of time and they were still trying to catch their breath yeah and so i started realizing supply chain became like a really big buzzword for me you know a decade ago and i start researching it and i start realizing we need that we need this we need this and these are all different aspects of the business and we don't have any executive here that can really put all these puzzles together. Well, maybe I can be that person. So I started taking certificates. I can hear almost my mother, young, the, my, 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 my younger self listening to my mother. Education is the key to success. Education is the key to success. So I started becoming obsessed with reading about it, researching about it, hearing about it. You know, uh, again, signing up for certificates, signing up for um, just resources that could help us figure out how to implement a healthier supply chain. How much of this trails back to that philosophy of your mother's that there's no wall you can't break down? I mean, because, because again, there's so many, you really had so many opportunities throughout your life to, to just walk away, to succumb, to not have, I mean, okay, you apply to all these schools and they turn you down, turn you down. That's got to be shocked to confidence, but yet you continually seem to look forward. And do you think a lot of it traces back to just that consistent upbringing that there's no there there are no barriers i agree uh, not only the altruism and the message but i think the values and the work ethic that i saw in my parents that when they had a goal 
like my mother, when she had a goal to move us, despite not having any means to do it, she figured it out. There was no excuse. There was no superhero that was going to come to save us. You know, Santa Claus didn't even come a few years. I mean, we did not believe in mythical creatures of any kind. We knew that it was within us, but we also believed that the power was within us. We just needed to be more assertive about it. And I totally agree that this this whole remove the barriers um, and pursuing education as my key to solidify myself was absolutely what turned the page for me and what really began the 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 start of my executive career so this is this is a really great example of what it means to be accountable because you know we talk about accountability as you know taking control of a situation taking control of your life stepping up so 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 whenever things happen and things happen to everybody all the time you you have a choice you you know and and some of it unconsciously it's easy to become a victim it's easy to point fingers it's easy to to make excuses the hard thing is to to set those aside and to focus yourself on your future and you were raised to believe that I mean you know I, you know people come from all walks of life but your situation was was similar to a lot of people in this world who may choose to just let the world be their excuse may choose to not go forward it's one of the things actually I, I'm, I'm concerned with about our society today is I think we're quicker to point fingers than we are to find solution and and that's a very very negative place and yet because of your upbringing, because of your philosophy, I mean, I mean, certainly, I mean, come on, come on, coming from a broken home where there was abuse and all those things, you had every probably excuse in the world to to still be, you know, um, unsuccessful today. Yet you've driven yourself. You keep finding. You kept looking, and I don't think it's it's too late for anybody to learn that. I mean, we can do that later in life too. I mean, but it's it's about a choice. It's about a choice to move forward. At that point, I didn't recognize that I was in charge of my narrative that maybe came later in life. I think I was coming from a survival perspective and that I needed to survive. I needed to level up. I needed to ensure we never went back to a Section 8 apartment. Um, I look at a cockroach today and I start crying because they would crawl on us at night. We literally had blankets in the tropics, 100 degrees and there was no AC inside, but a fan. And I still would, would sleep with blankets and, and cover myself because I didn't want the cockroaches to touch me. So it comes from, you start fighting because you just, you just, you start replaying those moments in your life and you need to do everything that's possible to never go back to that place. And so if my mother is telling me that the key to success is to pursue education is to pursue this, you know, no life comes with a with a guide, you know. I, I, I that's and 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 maybe that's the first time I realize I'm gonna have to come up with my own creative solution for my life because nobody's gonna give me the answers. So these these things start on you know unveiling themselves, revealing themselves, um, you know, over time. And and it almost took like a step at a time for me to start recognizing and putting those pieces together. Um, So once I eventually I complete my master's degree in supply chain, um, at that point, I'm not only recognized within my own company, but even other places as I go to expositions and I go to summits, other people start taking notice uh, of me. And I'm thinking, I'm onto something here. I'm going to fake it until I make it. I'm going to throw keywords out there and I'm going to talk to the smartest people. If I am ever the smartest person in the room, I need to walk away from that room. I need to be with 
everybody who's smarter, wiser, stronger, confident, those are the people I need to be around with. You know, I need to be listening. I, I don't I, I don't need to be the one talking. People talking are not learning anything. So I wanted to be in a position where I was actually listening and absorbing. And that all helped shape me. But in particular, there was one mentor, which was the owner of the company, that had a very compassionate and very empathetic approach to leading that I hadn't seen, especially in the finance industry, at least in my years of experience there, um, that I hadn't seen before. And I could see the transformation or the difference, I should rather, you know, rather that when employees are following a person because they feel uh, vulnerable or because of power. And another one is when people follow your ideas, your ideology, your, they connect the passion of what they're doing to the, to the, to the overall goal of the company. And it almost seems like people over profits, although the profits kept pouring in, the more, the better we treated people. And so I, I, began diving into books about self-development, you know, empathetic leadership. I finally defined myself as a servant leader. At that point, I wasn't yet a C-suite executive, but I was the youngest executive to sit at the table. um, And I had no family connection. It was just wits, guts, and just bravery to just own my chair and, and, and make it as that, even though inside I felt fragile and I felt inexperienced, but in the outside, I would never allow anybody to, um, to call me out on it. it. It's, it's such a testament to the power of culture, right? I mean, we talk all the time about how treating people and, and is important. And this, this concept of the better you treated people, the better the profits I wish I could get that point across to more more leaders. I, I come across a lot of egotistical leaders. There's a lot of people that, that we can't work with because they already know everything. And, you know, your, your, your point about if, if I've never heard anybody say it like that before, but I love the way you put it. If I'm the smartest person in the room, I have to find another room, right? Because you don't, you don't learn when you're the smartest person in the room. Um, and, and, and worse yet, I think it takes a great amount of self-awareness, which is essential to moving ourselves forward. Because if we're not self-aware, we could probably we can we could easily think we're the 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 you know smartest or most important person in the room. I've seen a lot of people like that too, where the egos just get in the way. So it's it's again some some great philosophies. When we come back, we're going to start diving in a little bit to the building of the culture at Lakewood. I I, I want to spend some time there because um, you know, so Letty's talking a lot about following passion and how that's that's led to her her um her success. But the building of the culture is how she's really becoming known as a leader in the business world. So let's take a minute. Uh stay tuned. We'll be back in uh just a few seconds. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. 
For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. So we're back one last time with Letty. Um, and Letty, there's so much to the story. We were just we were just saying we might even have to do another show to, to, to bring in some of the details because there's still so much to go. Um, but we were talking over the break about what it, what it means to really um, break out of a bad situation. You know, I, I shared a story that, that, that my father and uncles grew up with absolutely nothing in their life in the Boston area. And during the Great Depression, uh, there was one story that, that they would share where um, their father had given them a dime to go to a movie for the afternoon. Afternoon. You know, it was a, it was a real treat because they didn't have the money to do that sort of thing. I mean, it just just eking by like like your family did, and it was winter time. And as they were walking, um, I think it was my my uncle Louis had dropped the dime in the snow, and that dime was so precious that one of them ran back to the house to get a few matches so they could melt the snow because they couldn't find the dime and they had they had to find that dime, and um, and it was it was just that valuable to them. And, and I, I think that, that people, sometimes they, they, they don't understand that. You know, they, they want it either to be given to them or they want to show up. But, but, you know, if we're in a bad situation, you can break out. I mean, you know, my dad started driving a bakery truck and from driving a truck and doing so many odds and ends, he actually boxed in the golden gloves to earn a few dollars. He, he did everything you could imagine to, um, to, to make every bit of money he could to build something and ended up building a huge organization out of it. But that drive is essential. It really is. Um, It's a very powerful story. I I think that one thing that I noticed in that story and maybe what I find in common with a lot of people that go through traumatic experiences or that grow up in such scarcity is that there are great entrepreneurs. They've already experienced the worst of the worst. And so when you don't have anything to lose, you can take even bigger risks. And so I, I you know, I, I just command your family for, for being able to see that. Unfortunately, it's, it's a very difficult situation um, because you, you, we are in a system where I have seen to- toxic environments mm-hmm. where the power over the employee, that's a lazy way to lead. It's it very is. easy to lead with fear. You it have is. the power. The, the power is in, in your restraint of that power to not just lash out at people when you're having a bad day. That's where the strength really comes from. If you're just leading people with power, that's a lazy, that's the easy part. But connecting with people at a human level, spending time with them, training them, holding them accountable, giving them candid feedback, even when it stings, but you know you're doing it because you want them to grow from it. I've only grown from candid feedback. Anybody sugarcoating, you know, feedback to me, that never helped me. 
uh, my 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 greatest drives or my greatest accomplishments have been when I got out of my comfort zone, and that required somebody giving me feedback. And obviously, it takes self awareness for you to take what applies to you and what needs to be, you know, maybe it's somebody else's opinion and don't let that affect your confidence. Uh, but it is a very delicate, every human is different and they react to information differently. But when I started connecting with the operators in yeah. the plant and I started hearing their stories, I'm like, they don't realize this, but I am actually one of them. Mm-hmm. And they gave me so much drive and passion to build a successful company that would give them stability. I wanted them to go and pick up their kids. Right. I wanted them to have a life, you know, a work-life balance that would inspire them to come back to work and do an even better job the next day, where they would be willing to take an hour from their day that they don't have to cross-train for another equipment. It does take a lot of accountability, and it's not always, you know, I feel like a lot of people feel that, you know, culture champions are some sort of, like, cheerleaders that cheer on good and the bad, and that's not true. That's actually toxic. Yeah. Uh, when you give positive reinforcement to bad behaviors, it's actually more of a place of compassion to, to hold people accountable for their actions, but always giving them room to improve. And you should never yeah. expect perfection, but progress. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because as you say all that, you know, that that's that's what I learned from my dad. I don't know that he ever said it in so many words, but that's how he acted. And that's, you know, that that was the, the kind of environment. Everybody got treated equally. And that means that everybody got the hard feedback as well as the pat on the back. And, um, you know, he always, he, he, one of the things he used to say a lot is the truth will set you free, but it might tick you off first, right? I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a philosophy, but, but treat everyone with respect. Treat everyone as though they could be the leader of your organization. You know, these were things that we talked about. Didn't matter who they were, where they came from. Remember where you came from and the people that helped you versus the ones that didn't. Yet today we see such such ego in some roles or worse yet this thing about accountability is really really hard people have a hard time being honest and they don't recognize that that's the greatest gift you could give somebody versus you, you know you're really holding them back uh, uh you know susan scott uses this example in fierce conversations she said sometimes a message gets lost because we've had too many pillows it's like you're teaching your kid to ride their bike and we've had so many pillows around them so if they fall they don't feel it you got to take the pillows off you got the message has to come through and it has to be clear. Otherwise, no one can grow. I love the connection that you made about the the accountability in the workplace, but how it also applies as a parent, because mm-hmm. I can tell you my my kids are teaching me how to be a parent. One of the things that my my son, my son is now four, but this was about maybe a year ago. And one of the things that I've learned uh, through reading children development books too, and just talking to the pediatrician is that oftentimes when he's struggling with something, I come in and I just do it for him because I I think I'm being helpful, but I'm not really. A, I'm coming in with something that he's struggling with and I'm doing it in seconds. I am now invalidating that this is a hard task for him to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not teaching him the tools to be resilient, to go after a goal. And now I'm teaching him that anytime he has an issue, I'm going to be the one to fix it. Yeah. So I'm just creating a bigger burden for him in that he's not developing tools where he is self-sufficient, where I am encouraging him. You can do this. You can open the jar. You know, let's practice together and have the patience. I think the reason uh, people don't take the time is because it is time consuming. 
it would, it's a lot easier for me to just open the jar. It's a lot yeah. easier for me to pep talk people, but it's not the same to give candid feedback because expect candid feedback to return. Expect to have a follow-up with that person. Expect to have a plan where you can develop somebody. It takes a lot more time and energy from the leader than it would just to brush over it and keep moving and focus on just business operations. So I, I would agree with that. And I also think, though, that people who've been through really hard points in their life, I mean, I think you can look at a lot of examples of this. You know, you know the ones that have generated success, there are a lot of people in your position, my dad's position, and even me. I mean, I've had to rebuild my life since leaving, you know, the corporate world and, and, and doing it. And, and I, I think that, that for some people, um, and, I, and I've heard people say this as parents, that I don't want my kids to struggle the way I did. And you know what? We don't want them maybe to struggle to that level, but but making their life too easy is is creates a, a culture of enablement, right? It, it, it's it's entitlement. I guess is probably the better word. And I think entitlement again is is a problem that we're having a bit today because we have you know we have kids that have um, and there's lots of examples. Of this kids that um, have basically been given everything, every aspect of the life, and they go on to college, and then they don't know why they're not getting hired into the job that they expected. My mm-hmm. son, when he graduated from college, was thrilled with a job offer he was giving, given, right? And, you know, I could have easily thought to myself, oh, you know, you could go for more, you could do this, you could do that. But I thought, no, you know what? He's going to have to learn to manage money. He's going to have to learn to do this stuff. I mean, just like we've had him learn things throughout his life. And, um, and he had friends that would turn down jobs at the same level because they just thought they were worth so much more. And I'm like, you know, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. You're, 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 you, you haven't ever had to struggle yet. And for some of these kids, it's, it's a shock. And, and I think it, it, the behavior gets even further enabled when they hear stories about the few kids out there that hit what I would call like the entrepreneur or business lottery, right? So, you know, uh, you can go back to Bill Gates, right? Every, everybody talks about what Bill Gates has done and how successful micro, Microsoft is, but not many people know the story. Not many people don't know about him sleeping under his desk because he didn't have a place to go um, while trying to create the first software platform after leaving, I think it was IBM or what. People don't know that story. You don't become Bill Gates just because somebody says, oh, you're a great guy. But today we do have a few situations where a kid might come up with a game and some investors give him a billion dollars for it, right? Or this or that. And those stories are literally hitting the lottery, but it's so much so that, that everybody thinks that they can do that. Everybody thinks their value's there and everybody thinks that there's an easy win without the hard work. And, and it's just not true. Yeah, I think it's also a projection of what other people's success may be. And I, and I speak specifically about my parents. For my, for, for, for my parents, success was education, was a title. And to an extent, I pursued that, but it didn't, that wasn't me. I, I feel like with every generation and something that I do uh, feel proud about the generations to come is that they do strive for work-life balance. They do want it all. And I am, I feel like that is the future where, you know, there, there has to be more of a balance. I do agree that for me, success is as I have now come to define it. And I hope my children get to redefine it with their children. But for me, success isn't about the, the job title and the salary. It's great to earn money, but it's more important to love what you do yes. and spend time with your family and have time for your doctor's appointment and not miss the milestones of your children. That is rich. Yes. That for me is rich. And that comes from a point, from my perspective, from resiliency and adaptability. So that's what I want to teach my children. It's not, and I say this even about brands. 
it's not the brands with the largest amounts of cash that will be in the long term most successful. It's those brands that can adapt. It's those brands that have the resiliency to withstand crises because they're nimble. And I feel that way about ourselves. And I hope that my children, by the time that I have grandchildren, that they get to redefine what success means to them. But in order for me to change, to teach them adaptability and resiliency, I need to remove myself. That's kind of when you go to a psychologist and they don't give you the recipe on how to fix your life. They ask you questions because it needs to come from within. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's, it's, it does come down to how you define success, but that definition of success just isn't automatic. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, I, I was telling somebody a story the other day when, when, when I, when I first left big boy, I left without a parachute and people said, how, how could you do that? How, how could you not have another job lined up? How could you, you know, how could you put your family at risk? I mean, I got a lot of criticism and, you know, there was a confidence, I think, that I was going to figure something out. Um, and, you know, fortunately I did. And I always figured I could go get a job if, if what I was doing didn't work. But success for me also wasn't defined by the big paycheck. I was unhappy with what I was doing. And that, that is just a truth. And I don't share that a lot. But, but I, was, I was good at it. I think people recognize me as but I was unhappy. And um, my wife shares the story all the time. She said the day that I, w- I woke up, after I walked away, I was like a new person. And, um, and there are choices that need to be made. There are choices that need to be made. And, and there's work behind those choices. You know, um, you know, people I know that have done what I've done, um, I've, I've highlighted some on the show, uh, Tori Miller, who was on the show some time ago, he had multiple failures before he had success. But if he ever stopped, where would he be today? And yet he's become a very successful entrepreneur by how he defines success. And that's, that's what you're expressing as well. I mean, I guess some people would define me walking away from the financial industry a failure, me applying to vet schools and being rejected as a failure. You know, you, you, just, you just have to find, you, you just have to follow your gut. And as long as you got the work ethic and, you know, things will turn up. Uh, what I say to other brands and other companies that I've had the, the pleasure of speaking with about culture is that how expensive would it be if your best people walk away, mm-hmm. replacing those people, you know, focusing on people is not a waste of money and it's not a waste of time. You'll have a bigger, stronger company. Um, my approach always has been, you know, in a positive culture, when I have to bring in people, when I look at resources that need to be added into the business, I typically hire, I promote within, and then I bring support people that can start then the ropes on training and moving up. You know, when you start padding the top, you know, that's not really going to help um, the people that are closer to the facts that are really doing the grind on the day-to-day basis, those are the people that really need the help. So, uh, and I mean, every company can have different needs. That's not to say that's a strategy that fits for all. Uh, but typically when people need help, um, it's always great to bring in a consultant so that you could get the shortcuts and kind of get the business up and running yeah. and then leave your people to do the maintenance work, just the upkeep, and then just bring your consultants once a year to refresh you know, standards and whatnot. And, and then you have your people within your organization to continue moving, you know, towards, towards those goals and towards those improvements. Um, and yeah, and that takes time. It takes time to build. It takes time to develop. Uh, but most importantly, once you are there, you need to focus on retaining the people. And more and more, I see not only, um, you know, I'm, I'm considered a millennial, uh, but even generations after me, they're moving towards a gig economy. 
they don't want to put up with, you know, you know, villain employers, you know, crushing their spirit, asking them to work 60, 70, uh, you know, hours a week. They're not going to put up with that. Um, and I feel very proud of the changes that are coming because I think it's going to force employers to relook at how they manage and a bigger focus on culture, um, I feel, will be coming very shortly if it's not already here. Uh, that's that's excellent. And, um, you know, I really would like to invite you back sometime to talk a little bit about the how on some of that. So, you know, we, we, we got a lot, a lot into history, and I think history is important. Um, you shared stories that, that emphasize a point that I think is very, very important. It's not so much about, you know, I, I would say you can't be arrogant, and yet you have to have some level of confidence, which is based from a level of self-belief and that self-belief can catapult us to success. If we, if we don't let the barriers, if we don't let the walls get too thick or too big, we have to be able to break those walls down. And so self-belief becomes very, very important in, um, in, in our success, but also recognize that the things that, that we want in life, others do as well. Right. And so, so when we think about, you know, well, we want the place where we work to be great so do they, right? We want to be treated a certain way, so do they. And it's, it's, it's important. But most of all, if you don't fo- follow your passion, how can you be fully happy? And when you're not fully happy, um, that actually, I think that has a, r- a ripple effect, right? There's, there's you know, it, 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 it affects others around you. When you're energized and happy with what you're doing, that has a positive effect and, and it creates a better connection. And, and following your passion is very, very important. So for any of you that are, that are thinking about that today, something to keep in mind. We are at the end of our time, unfortunately. Um, Lenny, I've <laughs> so loved having you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is this is fun. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> Let's and, do it again. Yeah, we, we, we are going to do it again because because uh, again, I think you bring a lot to the the listeners and. Um, and let's um, let's let's get into that conversation about building the culture and, and some of the maybe the more tactics of it. Um, that's it for this week, everyone. Uh, stay tuned. Next week, we got another good show coming. Uh, if you want to contact me, you know how to do it. You can do it through the Voice America website. Um, you can also contact me through uh, my personal website. It's uh, chriseliasauthor.com, um, another place where you can find us. Uh, anyway, until next week, hope everything goes well for you, and I will see you soon. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.